Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV. Best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, April 23rd. Welcome, everybody, to the broadcast. I am Rob Jerisline, and we are live at WCCO Radio Studios until the top of the hour. Lots of uh, some fun content coming at you. Uh, we are going to talk. Uh, we're going to talk about bison a little bit. Buffalo, believe it or not, that's a topic, growing topic of discussion, so to speak, uh, in the, the natural resources field. And I want to talk to a DNR employee about that a little bit. What's going on with the Minnesota bison conservation herd? Did you know there was such a thing? Well, there is, and we're going to talk about it a bit on this broadcast. Uh, that'll be at five thirty. In between. The grand legend himself, Ron Shera, is going to join us here in about 10 minutes or so. Last week we had Mark Strand on for a few minutes. We talked about turkey hunting, but uh, Mr. Shera uh, has forgotten more about turkey hunting than most of us will ever know, and he's agreed to join us for a segment today. I want to talk to him about uh, yeah, turkey populations in general. He's seen the, the great rise of turkey populations across the region and maybe turkey populations plateauing. Some folks may be saying even declining a bit. I want to get his take on that a little bit, we'll talk some tactics. Also, as reported here two weeks ago, Governor Tim Walls, uh, that this has been everywhere the past 48 hours, uh, that uh, Governor Tim Walls will not be at the governor's fishing opener on May 13th. Uh, we uh, reported that here, that uh, he is going to be heading out to his daughter's college graduation in Montana, Montana State. I believe that's out in Bozeman. So, hey, it's hard to uh, hold a grudge against him for that. I appreciated uh, Senator, I believe he's the minority leader, Paul Gazelka, tweeting. He said, I disagree with the governor on some things, but this isn't one of them. You only have so many big events in kids' lives. Make the most of them. I, I always like to call out when politicians you know, kind of go out of their way not to be hyper-partisan over middling things in life. Uh, I can't tell you how often on Twitter I'll I'll type out a tweet and I won't send I won't hit you know send on it because I try to follow that mantra in life if you can't say something nice don't say anything at all and it's, so a lot of my tweets never see the light of day uh, as a result of that I suppose I suppose if everybody did that social media would probably cease to exist right I mean that's kind of what it's all about but I try to use uh, Twitter anyway for positive means I do have an outdoor handle at outdoor scribe if you ever want to see what I've Got cooking. Your Twins beat the Nats, what, 3-1, to one, I believe, uh, this afternoon, so they uh, avoided the sweep. Uh, my brother uh, lives out in D.C., and I've spent a fair amount of time in that area, and the Nats have kind of become my second team after the Twins just because my brother's had season tickets, and that, uh, we, we've been to a lot of games together. And early in the season, well, it's still early in the season, but the first week or so he thought the Nats were going to be battling with KC and the A's for the bottom of uh, – for the dregs of baseball, well, it, he had fun taunting me the past couple of days as the Twins lost two out of three, but at least they uh, they avoided the sweep and won today, so I'm, I'm happy about that. I wanted to, uh, I, a couple things cooking in the legislature before we break. Uh, one, the um, there's legislation in the House, I believe it's the House Omnibus Environment and Climate Bill, that would ban a wolf hunt in Minnesota. Now, there is no wolf hunting in Minnesota now. We had a hunt, what, 2012, 13, and 14, I believe, that really after the initial hunt was relatively a non-event. It was fairly quiet. We killed a couple hundred wolves each year. That's a pretty basic harvestable surplus 
in terms of the wolf's population in Minnesota. And by 2014, no one was really even talking about it anymore. Nonetheless, we had a lot of court rulings, suits, uh, and the feds involved. And long story short, about a couple of years ago now, the feds said the, the, the states could not control wolf management, at least here. They can't out west where they've got you know many, many fewer wolves than we've got in Minnesota. But uh, that's I won't rant about that. But uh, so we're, we're kind of waiting for the feds to get their ducks in a row and then tell the states again in the upper Midwest, yes, you can manage wolves, and then we could potentially uh, have a season again. This legislation would, even if even if the feds give us the green light, this legislation would ban a wolf hunt in the state. And it passed the House. It was supposed to be in the Senate. I don't believe it moved in any uh, in the Senate version on Thursday. But there was a letter that went out uh, from 11 yeah, outdoors conservation groups uh, to the Senate saying, we, the undersigned organizations, respectfully ask you to oppose any amendments to the Senate version of this bill that would prohibit a future wolf season in Minnesota. Uh, The groups included were the Minnesota Deer Hunters Association, the Safari Club, Rough Grouse Society, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, then a couple kind of non-hunting group, Minnesota State Cattlemen's Association, Minnesota Elk Breeders Association, and the last one was, I think, a fairly big signatory, Minnesota Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, um, you know, a real mainstream group that you've seen quoted in outdoor news as well as on, uh, you, you've heard me mention them a number of times uh, on this broadcast also. So, I mean, a good mix of different organizations saying, you know, hold up, we don't want the legislature managing wildlife. We want the DNR doing that. We want the general public to have a discussion about this and not, you know, a couple of random legislators declaring, well, we, we don't like this idea, which, again, it's all kind of moot anyway until the feds decide to play ball. Uh, but like I said, I don't think it was added to the Senate version. I'll probably know more uh, middle of this week, and we can talk about it again next week. However you feel about the issue, you should understand that potential wolf management is something the Minnesota legislature is kicking around uh, this session, which is we're down to what a couple, two, three weeks, three, four weeks of the session. I forget the exact date when it uh, when it wraps up. Uh, we will uh, we'll talk about some more topics later in the show. I expect to have some time maybe to take calls at the end six five one four six one ninety two twenty six if you want to chime in with the broadcast. For now, though, let's get in a break. Our friend Ron Sherrill will join us when we return. We're going to talk turkey on WCCO Outdoors. And we're back, WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Jerisline. We're here till 6 o'clock, then stay tuned for 60 minutes. At 7 o'clock, our buddy Hank Lake will be live from the Skyway studio at Target Center as we get prepared for Game 4 of the Timberwolves playing the Denver Nuggets pregame at 8, and the tip-off is going to be 8.40, 8.45, something like that. See if the T-Wolves can avoid being swept Jump in now with our old friend Ron Shera. Hey, turkey hunting is underway, and I don't think there's many people on the planet who know more about the great sport of chasing gobblers than Ron Shera, and he joins us now. Ron, how are you doing, my friend? Well, thanks for that great introduction. Sometimes the more I hunt turkeys, the more I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I, <laughs> I always say wild turkey is predictably unpredictable. Uh, and that's uh, part of what I love about them. So, well, let's, um, <laughs> there's a lot to say about these birds in a, the ten minutes that we've got here, Ron. You've really seen it all. I mean, you remember vividly the day you were an outdoors writer at the Star Tribune when turkey hunting wasn't even a thing in Minnesota, right? You've seen the whole history unfold with these birds in this state. 
Well, I have. In fact, I'm very proud of the role uh, I played, and not just me, but you know, I have a turkey hunting camp in the Black Hills, which I got started when I used to work for South Dakota Game and Fish Department. I'll talk real quick here because I had a lot of Minnesota people would come out. They had never hunted turkeys. They learned how to hunt them there. And uh, and we we all gathered back in Minnesota and formed the very first chapter of the National Wild Turkey Federation. And uh, there was no, uh, there were turkeys in the southeast part of the state, but they were brought in from Nebraska. They They weren't doing good. And and uh, I, I remember walking into Roger Holmes' office. He was the wildlife mm-hmm. chief for DNR, and I said, "Hey, we need to do more for turkeys." He said, "If you want, it's not. I don't have any money in my budget for turkeys." He said, "If you want more turkeys, you got to raise the money yourself." I said, "Okay, we will." So we formed this chapter, raised money, and 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 basically our chapter formed formed by the guys that came out to my turkey camp in South Dakota. We we basically paid for the initial trap and transplant program in Minnesota, and Gary, uh, the guy was doing that. We paid his salary. Gary Nelson. And right? he, tra- Gary Nelson. Yeah, he trans he transferred like five thousand turkeys in this state, and that was the start of it all. So I'm proud of that. Anyway. Well, it's it's fantastic. I mean, when now we got these birds almost statewide, we've got great opportunities to chase them. You know. Ron, I'm a little curious what your take is on some of the scuttlebutt, some of the chatter out there. The turkey populations nationwide, anyway, have have perhaps peaked or plateaued or maybe even declined a little bit. Is that sync with some of your observations, or does it just seem to you like, at least in this part of the country, the numbers are still climbing? Well, that's a tough one because turkeys are hard to to do census, and I have heard mm-hmm. the same thing you have. Southeast uh, United States, they're saying some of their turkey population is down. They're making some adjustments to the hunting. I mean, Alabama at one time said you could have five gobblers. Wow. I mean, you know, who needs five gobblers? Mm-hmm. And then we have a fall season where you could shoot a hen. Well, you know, we don't do that with pheasants. Why are we doing it with turkeys? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, they lay the golden egg. So uh, I think I think everybody got maybe so excited about how turkeys have expanded that we got silly with some of our uh, length of hunting seasons, et cetera. But, you know, you're shooting gobblers only in the springtime. You, it's just like hunting pheasants. You're just shooting the rooster birds, mm-hmm. so, you know, you're not making any impact on the population theoretically. So, But, yes, I've heard that. I asked, uh, actually wondering about the, the bird disease that's been hitting ducks right. and our domestic turkeys. Mm-hmm. So far, it hasn't showed up in the wild turkey, which is interesting, at least that to, to my knowledge. And... Um, South Dakota, where I'm at, there in the Black Hills, they're they're concerned about the declining population in the North Hills. Hmm. But you know, weather comes in there. The Black Hills has had like two or three springs where the hatch has been basically decimated. Well, it doesn't take long for your turkey population to uh, uh, decline pretty drastically if you don't have a hatch. So, you know, that's nature again. They'll come back. Yeah, I, I agree, and I and I hope uh, I hope. What we're observing is maybe just a blip, and I think if we do need to adjust regulations, the first thing I do is eliminate some of these fall seasons where we're, we're plinking a few hens. I don't think we're taking many, but uh, any would seem to be unnecessary. Uh, hey, you know, let's talk a little bit about those Black Hills birds. We have four subspecies of wild turkeys in Minnesota. We've got the Miriam's bird out there. I think in some ways they're the most beautiful of all four of the subspecies. Uh, that's pretty cool, pretty accessible to folks here in Minnesota, isn't it? 
Well, it is. Uh, yeah, the Merriams are in South Dakota. You know, they were never native there. They were brought in from New Mexico back in the late 1940s, and they just took off because they, they in in Arizona and New Mexico, they were they the Merriams thrived in ponderosa pine. Well, the Black Hills is oh. the world's largest stand of ponderosa. <laughs> yeah. But then uh, the Rio Grande bird is a Texas bird. Uh, some in Nebraska as well. Of course, in Minnesota we have the eastern. A bird, and then in Florida, uh, there's another subspecies there that I have hunted, and they're they're interesting to hunt. They almost sneak up on you if you're calling them, but uh, they're all interesting in their own way. But the Miriam is much more talkative than the eastern bird, and that makes them more fun. That doesn't mean they come in any easier, but they're they're they tend to gobble more frequently and easily, and I think that's because they evolved in wide open western country where you if you're going to have a girlfriend you got a gobble you know what i mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where the eastern bird uh, in dense forests he didn't gobble so much because he would he couldn't see far anyway so that's my theory anyway ron one of my mentors uh, uh, the late mike strandland from bow hunting world magazine he uh, he he used to actually compare elk hunting to turkey hunting a little bit he thought he, he he called elk 900-pound gobblers because he said it was very similar. It seemed like you were hunting sometimes similar to terrain, especially if you were out west. There's the calling element. There's the back and forth with the bugling and try to bring, you know, attract this elk in uh, like a turkey. I don't know if you've done much elk hunting, Ron, if, if you think that's a bit of a stretch, but um, I, I don't know. I always thought it was a fun analogy. It's not a bit of a stretch. I, I, I've used the same analogy. Oh, uh, <laughs> it is, I mean, and I... I've I've hunted a lot of elk, bugle them in. It's great fun. Interestingly, you know, I can I I'll brag. I can call turkeys, sure. and um, of course I've been doing it for over fifty years. But I can't I can't call a duck. I can't call a goose because <laughs> I, I haven't tried that hard. But I can call turkeys both with my mouth or slate call, box call. But uh, but uh, you know you know I can't call ducks anyway. <laughs> Yeah, this is a- this is WCCO Outdoors. We're chatting with our friend Ron. Share a little bit. The wild turkey hunting season is underway here in Minnesota and uh, across most of the region. Also, you know, turkeys, Ron, are a bit of a gateway game animal, game bird to hunting for a lot of people. My dad, for example, uh, had he was my dad was of course a hardcore hunter, but he had some guys in his office that weren't into hunting. They didn't understand it. And the way he, he he introduced a couple of those folks to hunting, who and guys who are now hardcore deer hunters, guys who have gone elk hunting, guys that are hunting multiple species now, the way he started it was with the wild turkey. Because I think, you know, that interactivity we're talking about with the calling, everybody loves Thanksgiving. Everybody knows how to eat turkey. I think that's part of it. Uh, do you agree that uh, turkeys are a great gateway animal to introduce someone to hunting? Well, it's about as addictive as you can get. I mean, it's so, it's so addictive, especially if you hear one gobble. You may not even see them, but if you hear them gobble, you're addicted. Where deer hunting, you you might not see anything for three days, but you'll hear a gobble, and that's the addictive part. You know, I I took Bud Grant on his very first turkey hunt, and that was in the Black Hills. He he got immediately addicted to turkey hunting. Um, he because uh, he, he, he told me. I like that because I like to hunt things that come to me instead right. of having to go after them. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, we're, we're talking with Ron Shera from, uh, and by the way, you can check out what Ron's got cooking at mnbound.com. Uh, 
any you know inspiring words, Ron? I guess for a, a, a young hunter out there, or you know maybe uh, someone who's not familiar with hunting. There's a lot of ways to access these birds, right? They're they're a public land bird, right? You can you can access them public lands, and there's a lot of mentoring programs out there. I think you know we should mention that with the DNR and other groups uh, that want to encourage folks to uh, to give turkey hunting a try, right? Well, you know, the the amount of information that's out there now, Rob, is so abundant, uh, YouTube and whatever. Uh, but I noticed on Facebook, or I, I belong to some, you know, turkey hunter web uh, uh, group or whatever. There's a lot of questions that people ask. I go, my, you haven't done your research here. You're, you're, you're taking. So my advice would be learn as much as you can about the bird. Go on uh, YouTube and learn about calling them and some of the things basic things and then um, do some advanced scouting check around get some private land too don't be afraid to ask landowners Um, a lot of landowners they won't let you hunt deer but they'll let you hunt Mm -hmm. turkeys yeah uh, because uh, you know they they don't want you to take that giant buck but they'll let you take a gobbler because there's always more gobblers so uh, it's it's a it's a great and then make sure your shotgun's patterned tightly so, so you got to shoot him in the neck and the head. If you shoot a turkey in the body, chances are he's going to end up being tur- uh, coyote food because you won't get him. Right, right. Yeah, you're using butt. a shotgun more like a rifle when you're when you're turkey hunting, uh, and less like a traditional you know wing shooting uh, shotgun. I, well, final couple questions here, Ron. Have you been out yet this year? Have you been to the Black Hills? You dropped a beat on a, on a gobbler yet in 2023? I'm going to the Black Hills on Friday, as, as funny as you would ask, and then uh, I'll come back and probably hunt uh, turkeys uh, later in May in Minnesota. I, you know, I'm not an opening day turkey guy. In fact, sometimes I think uh, the turkey hunting actually gets better uh, later. Uh, you you got to follow their breeding cycles, and there's a time when I don't care if you're how good a turkey caller you are, you're not going to call him in because he's got girlfriends with him. He's not going to leave him for you. And so you can get really frustrated, but that's all part of their breeding cycle. So once you kind of uh, figure the breeding cycle, uh, I try to go when uh, now he's had some girlfriends, but they've left him to nest. And now he looks around and says, my, I'm very lonely here. I'm still anxious to get it on in the woods. And then he hears you chime in and he goes, oh, there's a hot one. So that some stuff like that. Um, but I was going to say, back to the shotgun, Rob, I put a one- and two-power scope on my shotgun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the best way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, really good advice there. Well, I just want to point out, there's a lot of turkey hunting left. You know, you've got some folks that think, gosh, if I can't go out during the A or B season, we're in the middle of the B season right now, well, it's not worth it. But to, to Ron's point, some of those later seasons are just as good. I think we've got hunting almost till the end of May. You can buy an over-the-counter tag now. Uh, we talked about the liberalization of, uh, of the hunting, and uh, that's been really handy for spring for guys who – uh, or gals who you know traditionally were like they couldn't maybe set aside a whole week. Now they're like, hey, I got a weekend. I can go turkey hunting. They can go and buy that over-the-counter tag. Ron, we're out of time. But, yeah, hey, just one last plug. You're the president of Minfish. Uh, you guys had the great auction this past week. Any uh, inspiring words you want to say about Minfish as we uh, bear, uh, wrap up the, the legislative session? Well, we're we're not done with the legislature. We're waiting to see what happens with our request to get some money for public accesses and fish hatcheries. The governor is on our side. That's a big hammer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Senate hasn't uh, got their thing in there, but uh, we're not going to go away. And we're representing anglers, which is something that we we people who love fishing haven't had. So that's what we're trying to do. Well, thanks for all you're doing with that organization and everything else, Ron. Thanks a lot for joining us, and have a great week. Safe travels to the hills. 
Thank you, Rob. All right, take care, my friend. Ron, share it. Check out what he's got cooking at mnbound.com. Let's break. We are going to chat with the DNR employee a little bit about bison in Minnesota. Should be a fun segment. Don't go away. More WCCO Outdoors after these messages. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors, AM830. Rob Dreesline returning with you for another segment. Yeah, I would like to talk now about a really important animal, some a big game animal, frankly, a, the biggest game animal, you might say, in North America, but one we rarely talk about, but that we have here in Minnesota in a few small herds. I'm talking about the good old American bison. And to chat with us about that a little bit now is Molly Trannell Nelson with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. She's the Regional Resource Specialist out of New Ulm, and we're going to talk about the Minnesota Bison Conservation Herd. Molly, are you with me? That's a mouthful. I think I got it all right, though, didn't I? You did. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me today. You bet. We had a story recently Brian Mosey wrote about this conservation herd. You hosted a webinar kind of sharing with the public what it's all about. And, you know, I guess I casually knew, Molly, that we've got a few bison at a couple state parks. I even went down to that one by Mankato and walked around that uh, that area last summer. But there's a little more thought. There's a little more uh, investment going into this than I realized. Tell us a little bit about this Minnesota bison conservation herd. Sure. So we've actually had uh, bison in Minnesota State Park since 1961, which people don't realize we've had them that long. We started with a few bison at Blue Mound State Park out by Laverne. Uh, but now we're up to about 150 bison, give or take, during calving season. And we have them located at several state parks, also Minneopa State Park, and also at the Minnesota Zoo. And now we have partners, Dakota County Parks just came online with a bison herd this spring, and uh, Olmstead Zoo as well. So I've been going to the Minnesota Zoo for years, and I've seen bison there. Now they're officially part of the, the state herd, is that correct, going back they to like 2010? Yeah, so before they had bison, but they weren't breeding. They actually had kind of a sad-looking male there for a while. Hmm. And um, once they started partnering with us around 2010, we were able to provide them with some nice breeding females, and so they can have calves each year, because that's what everybody loves to see, right? Sure. the babies, yeah. the little cinnamon calves out there, but they have a small enclosure. They can only have a few animals. So they needed a place for those animals to grow and go once they grew up so that next year they could have the calves again. So that's where we came in. We have a great partnership where uh, we move animals between the zoo and between our, our herds out in the state parks. So I think most listeners are familiar with the American bison story, right? Uh, there were, was it 60 million or more at one point by the late 18th century, I think. Uh, they were extirpated for a number of reasons to the point where we were down to like less than a thousand, mostly around Yellowstone National Park, I believe. Is that right, Molly? That's the, correct. I, I presume yep. they were all gone in, in Minnesota at one time, right? They were. They've gone, they've been gone from Minnesota for well over 150 years. So it's pretty exciting to be bringing them back to places, back to the prairies where they used to roam. But they were down to, some say, less than a thousand animals. So if you can imagine what that does to a population in terms of genetics is it makes a, those last few animals really valuable to try to preserve all that um, that natural variation in their genetics. Now, one thing I've read about bison in North America is there are a lot of cattle genes mixed in with them. But I thought somewhere along the lines, I read that the Minnesota herd's pretty darn pure. We have a pretty special herd. Um, most of the bison across North, of Amer North America have cattle genes in them. 
because back when those bison came down to less than a thousand animals, the way they were conserved is ranchers, cattle ranchers, started uh, gathering up the remaining wild bison and they brought them to their cattle ranches. And some zoos got involved as well, but the idea was that they would create this um, perfect animal, this <laughs> um, beefalo, if you will, <laughs> of a bigger, more resilient animal, but more docile like, a, like cattle were. And it didn't quite work as well as they thought it didn't take off. But what happened is we then got those cattle genetics into the wild populations. So how pure now are like the bison that we have here in Minnesota? Are they 99%? Any idea? Every year it changes because the testing on how you can check how pure your herd is gets better and better each year. Mm -hmm. So we actually don't use the P word anymore, <laughs> as we call it, because um, you know, you can't, like, we could have thought we were 100% pure a few years ago, and now the genetics testing is so much better. They've, mm. they've actually mapped the entire bison genome, Wow, which is pretty amazing. What we look at is the mitochondrial DNA, and that's the stuff that's passed on from the mom, and that's the most important. So we have no mitochondrial DNA from cattle in our herds, so that's the really the most important part. Fantastic. Well, Molly, it's fun talking to you. I can tell you're really into this. You, you're, you're really excited to be working on this project. Am I right? You did pick my favorite topic. Yes. <laughs> it's a wonder. It's a great topic because this, this almost was an American horror story, like the passenger pigeon. Right. And luckily society turned it around. Uh, now we, we have nowhere near as many bison as we did historically, but there's hope, right? And, and there's an outlook here and you're right in the middle of that. And that's pretty cool, Mary. So to remind listeners, you're listening to WCCO Outdoors. I am Rob Jerisline. We're chatting with Molly Trannell Nelson. She's the regional resource specialist for the DNR out of New Ulm about the Minnesota bison conservation herd. So Molly, how many animals do we have in Minnesota now and, and what's the short-term and long-term goals for bison in the state? So right now, if you don't count the private meat herds, if you just look at the Minnesota bison conservation herd, we run at about 150 animals. We're going into spring calving season here. So uh, we expect about 50 calves a year. So we, you know, the numbers kind of fluctuate. Going into the winter, we try to um, keep certain numbers so that we don't stress our pastures too much. Our pastures are mostly all native prairie. So we want to make sure we're not overgrazing them. So uh, our numbers vary, but they're based on what our pastures can um, handle each year. And unfortunately, we're in a drought right now. So I'm mm -hmm. um, hoping for some, to get out of the drought from last year. And we can um, have probably quite a few calves this year that we're expecting. Is the goal like 500 animals? Yes. So 500, that, it's not a magic number, but that's about the number that a population can maintain itself over time genetically. Mm -hmm. So if you think of um, diseases coming in, climate change, we know bison are getting smaller as the um, earth gets hotter. So that's one thing to think about over time is making your population sustainable. And that number for us would be around 500. And also perhaps expanding the number of sites where we, where we keep bison in the state? Exactly. Yeah. You know, our state parks are, are rather small in terms of um, the space bison need to roam. So we can only have, you know, a few hundred animals at our different parks. So we're looking with partners and other areas where we can expand herds. And sometimes it's just expanding by five animals at a zoo, but each little bit help. Eventually, we'd like to, with all of our partners to get to that magic 500 number. 
Now, my friend Lan Tawney, the head of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers out in Missoula, Montana, he's got a strong personal interest in bison, as the organization does as a whole. Their their magazine, I think it was last year, did a cover story on trying to restore bison. Land talks a lot about, we've done a lot to restore all these other species in North America, elk, white-tailed deer, wild turkeys, you name it. But he said we're missing the top of the pyramid, in his opinion. And that top is, you know, our biggest, grandest, all-American animal, the bison. And, he, and he, you know, he says that, that needs to be a priority. He is citing, and I'm getting press releases from BHA pointing out, that there's some federal money that's come down to try to help restore bison gradually. Can you speak to that, uh, that those federal dollars a little bit? Could those help Minnesota's efforts? Yeah, and that's a good point. You know, the bison became our national mammal, I think, around 2016. So what better animal to, to bring back, right? And the bison used to, to roam, I mean, a good portion of North America, all the way up to Canada, down. There were even desert herds down towards Mexico. So, you know, people think of the tall grass prairie and the bison, but they were really everywhere. And so that money is going to go out through the Department of Interior. And so there's going to be a lot of funding available for new sites to get bison. And so that's really exciting for us because we're having more bison than we have land for right now in Minnesota. So we'd love to be a player with some of those federal partners and provide some bison outside of the state as well. Molly, this is a question I want to ask land. I haven't gotten around to it, but I'll ask you and see see how you feel about it. Do you ever see a day where bison are like elk or white-tailed deer or moose where who knows? I might be a landowner in Western Minnesota or who knows where, and a bison right. might traipse across my property. You think that's, that's well, how Well, there that's... are some, you know, lands up in Northwestern area where there's thousands and thousands of acres of public land. So a dream would be someday there could be some bison roaming on those. Uh, before I moved to Minnesota, I lived in Wyoming and uh, we had bison, you know, roaming outside the park all the time there. Mm-hmm just all sorts of pronghorn and mule deer through my backyard. So it was kind of a normal thing. So it would be great if we could get that back in Minnesota. I think we're really a long ways off from that. But mm-hmm. um, there's so much interest right now and there's so much funding. So the DNR is currently working to seek additional funding to um, to do more reintroductions on the land that we own, but also working with other partners as well, especially the tribes. So I think we will see more places get bison, uh, but right now I see it mostly as a fenced, um, semi-wild kind mm-hmm. of herds. Eventually it'd be great if we got there where um, the atmosphere could be that just a, re- a natural roaming bison would be accepted. If folks are listening, they want more information on the Minnesota Bison Conservation Herd. Is there a place they can they can find that info? Yeah, that's a really good question. Our DNR website has a bison conservation herd link. I don't have it off the top of my head, but well, I, okay. So that. just maybe just go to mndnr.gov yep. and search Minnesota and bison, conservation bison conservation herd. herd. Yep. You can also um, go to either of the state parks that have animals, either Blue Mounds or Miniopa. We have park programs. You'll learn more than you could ever uh, want to know about bison at those programs. At Blue Mounds, you can take a a ride out into the prairie on our prairie tour vehicle with a naturalist and they'll um, teach you about bison. And then at Miniopa, you can drive your own vehicle right into the bison range down the bison drive. So, Excellent. Again, mndnr.gov, search Minnesota Bison Conservation Herd, or again, uh, 
get information on Blue Mound State Park or Miniopa. Well, Molly, it's a pleasure getting to know you. Thanks for all you're doing on this great project. You got my full support. Good luck. Great. Thank you, Rob. All right. Molly Trannell Nelson from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources talking about American bison here in Minnesota. Let's break. We'll have more of the show after these messages. Final segment, everybody, on WCCO Outdoors News Talk 830 on this Sunday, April 23rd. Uh, When we wrap up in a few minutes, you can stay tuned for 60 minutes. Then at 7 o'clock, Hank Lake, Henry Lake, live from the Skyway Studio at Target Center. Uh, Then the pregame. Tip pregame for the, uh, the Timberwolves game against the Denver Nuggets. Uh, tip off at 8.40, 8.45, something like that. My sons were at uh, Friday's night game and kind of felt like the T-Wolves were a little outmatched, but maybe they can turn it around here and avoid getting swept. So stay tuned and uh, see how the T-Wolves do tonight. Uh, I've got a few minutes left. If folks want to check in with a phone call, 651-461-9226 is the call-in line. Otherwise, I've got a few topics to wrap up here with. Uh, one, uh, Tori McCormick had a great story in this week's print version of Outdoor News talking about uh, some of the opportunities on the Minnesota River, which, uh, you know, Mankato, Minnesota River, some of the lakes in that area are hosting the Minnesota Governor's Fishing Opener on May 13th this year. As we talked about earlier, the Governor, uh, Tim Wallace, actually won't be able to make it because he will be at his daughter's graduation out in Montana. But there's still going to be some festivities, and I think it's good to put a little spotlight on the Minnesota River. It's our namesake river, and it's an important waterway, one we're a little worried about. We don't want invasive carp to get in there and uh, and cause a bunch of problems like they have for other rivers across uh, the country. The Illinois River, I guess, would be the one that jumps out the most. But one thing that uh, Tory mentioned in his piece is that more and more anglers are targeting freshwater drum as, as a sport fish, as a game fish. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, where I grew up, and, and this is a fairly common term. I don't mean to make it sound like it's colloquial, just down in the Mississippi River where I uh, did my time as a youth downriver from uh, Winona. Uh, we called them sheep's head. Uh, but uh, they're a good eating fish, and I guess more and more anglers are targeting them. I see them in uh, Starring Lake in Eden Prairie. There's a, there's a the creek that connects it, and I guess they came up through the creek, and so you see them in that lake. You see them in the Minnesota River. The creek, of course, connects to the Minnesota River. Uh, but sheep's had a real good little white fillet on there, flaky. Uh, I remember one time my dad brought home some uh, fillets. Uh, he'd gone out, and he, he whipped them up, and we were eating them. And uh, what do you think of the fish, guys? I was, and I was oh, it's great, Dad. And, and he said, it's sheep's head. And we all kind of like, you know, curled our lips a little bit. He's like, ah, shut up, you guys. You, you enjoyed it until you knew what it was. Uh, but more and more people are enjoying a freshwater drum uh, as, a, as a game fish. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, maybe I'll need to put together some tactical pieces for fishing a freshwater drum. Hey, speaking of fishing regs, we should uh, mention that uh, Upper Red Lake, the DNR, announced its regulations for the open water season on Upper Red. Uh, fairly liberalized rule for uh, 2023. You can keep five fish up there. You can keep one over 17 inches. So the, the other, what, the other four have to be less than 17, which is, you know, fairly small. But, you know, if you know what you're doing with a fillet knife, you can still uh, get a good fillet off a, a 16 and a half inch walleye. I guess they got a really big 2019 year class of walleyes. They're, they're calling it super abundant. So they're telling anglers, you know, go up there and take a bunch of these small ones. Man, think of, you know, another year or two, those fish are going to be really huge. Um, Maybe that's one reason the DNR is 
you know, allowing some more harvest of them now because you, those those fish put a little more meat on their bones, another inch or two on their length, and they are going to be uh, they're going to be consuming a lot of forage on that lake. So uh, I guess they're encouraging anglers to go up and take them. Should be a great uh, open water fishing season for Upper Red when that kicks off again. That's an inland water on uh, May thirteenth, uh, and of course we're watching to see. Uh, how things progress with the Red Lake Band uh, declaring that they're interested in potentially what owning, managing all of Upper Red. Uh, they declared that earlier this year. They're talking to the feds, the Department of Interior about it, and we will keep tabs on that. Uh, finally, there was an item about Martha Williams, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service director. A little bit of controversy surrounding her tenure. It's, it's She generally had a non-controversial tenure. Uh, she was the former... I believe the uh, the director of the Montana Game and Fish Organization, uh, their natural game and fish department out in Montana. But some folks saying, well, she doesn't have enough of a resource background. She doesn't have like a degree in biology uh, like we sometimes like to see our, our U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service directors possess. She came up as an attorney with the agency, the Fish and Wildlife Service, before running that Montana group. I think she's pretty darn competent from what I've seen. And I'm a little surprised to see some of the backlash toward her. Uh, we've certainly seen other Fish and Wildlife Service directors who, in my opinion, were significantly less qualified than Martha Williams. But that's another one we'll keep tabs on. Hey, I am out of time. I appreciate uh, all the listeners. I appreciate the great guests, Ron Shera, as well as Molly Tranel-Nelson. I hope everybody has a great week out of doors. Rob Dresign signing off for WCCO Outdoors.